Now, didn't that enhance your worship experience this morning? Especially after the choir sang and all of that. And then you get to go to the floor of a stock market. That was the atmosphere in the temple court. The week, the Monday of Passover week, when Jesus walked in there. Now, there wasn't a thing about what you just saw that was worshipful. In fact, some of you probably thought they'd have made a mistake and they're running the wrong tape right now. But that was the exact atmosphere that you would have encountered of all places in the court of the temple as people were going in to worship. And nothing about that atmosphere would have inspired you to worship And that is why, as we're going to see this morning in Matthew 21, Jesus had a meltdown. All right, turn with me to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 1. Our subject today is a prayerful leader for a house of prayer. A prayerful leader for a house of prayer. Jesus entered the city of Jerusalem on the Sunday, the week leading up to his crucifixion. As he entered the city... Verse 10 of Matthew 21 says there was a stir. The Greek word there is literally schismatic, which is the idea of almost like an emotional earthquake was shaking the city as he came in. And he goes on Monday of that week to the temple, which sits in the center of the city of Jerusalem. Now, if you bring up that slide, I want to show you what the temple looked like that Jesus would have entered into. You will notice that it's in sections And the first big section is called the Court of the Gentiles. It was so called because it was the last court that if you were a Gentile, you were allowed into. It was the largest of the courts that you would have made your way through as you would have gotten to the temple building itself. And the story that we're going to read today takes place in this first big courtyard called the Court of the Gentiles. And it would have been filled with two types of people. First of all, it would have been filled with folks who had brought in all kinds of animals that would have been used in one of the next courts to offer a sacrifice with. And so you would have seen people there uh, with sheep, etc., etc. And in particular, you would have seen folks there that were selling doves or pigeons because those were the sacrifice of the poor. If you were someone who was poor, you would have bought a dove or a pigeon as your sacrifice. Secondly, you would have seen folks in that court who were called the money changers. Now, they were called the money changers for a reason. The Roman Empire at that time had multiple types of currency. And in Passover time, you had a confluence of people, of Jews in particular, from all over the Roman world, not only Israel, but etc., because Jewish law commanded that if you were Jewish, particularly if you were Jewish and you were male and you were over, I think it was 21 years of age, you had to make the pilgrimage to Jerusalem for Passover. But folks came in from all over the Roman Empire with different types of currency. And so in order to buy the sacrifices that were there, you had to go through the money changers in order to be able to purchase what you wanted to to get to the same currency. So their job was to act sort of like a customs agent would in our day and age to convert whatever currency you had to the currency of the temple. So you've got money changers, you've got sellers, and of course you have hundreds of people who are jamming this court that are coming there to worship the Lord. Now, if you can imagine 
you've got this courtyard. It is filled with people. It is clogged with people trying to get into it. And just like what you just saw on the screen, you've got money changers there. You've got people yelling prices all over the place as to what they're selling. You can get a sheep for this. You can get a goat for this. You can get a dove for this. There's change all over the place. There are all kinds of commerce going on going on, transpiring, and Jesus walks into this court. You couldn't have heard someone worshiping God if you tried to. And he stands there, and he's seeing all this commerce that is transpiring in the courtyard there. He doesn't hear any worship. Nobody is focused on worship or prayer. No one's even getting ready to worship. And the people that are the money changers and the folks that are selling in particular are not focusing on it. All they're focusing on is money. In fact, one of the reasons we believe Jesus gets so upset is because they were selling what they were selling for far more than what it was worth. And so they were essentially extorting money from people. And in this context, the story takes place, Matthew 21, beginning with verse 12. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons or doves. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you made it into a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple. And he healed them. But when the chief priest and the scribes saw the wonderful things that Jesus did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the Son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes, have you never read out of the mouth of infants And nursing babies, you have prepared praise. And my sermon outline is containing your bulletin, and I ask that you would follow along with me. Jesus says that his house is to be a house of prayer. Imagine the atmosphere. They are yelling and hollering and selling stuff, calling out numbers. You know, we'll sell you this for this. We'll sell you this for this. And Jesus steps into the courtyard. And if you had been there that day and you would have looked at him, you would have seen fire coming out of his eyes. You would have seen sternness appear on his face. You would have seen anger just just coming out of him. If you were one of the disciples, you probably would have been shocked in the sense that you'd never seen him so angry. And Jesus begins to walk through there, and he walks up to guys who are selling stuff, and he grabs a hold of the table, and he turns the table over, changes flying all over the place. And he goes from table to table, and man, I imagine things started getting quiet. What in the world is going on? This guy is disrupting everything that's going on in here. He is mad as he can be. And and again, it's just total chaos as he's turning over tables and telling people, you made this place into a den of robbers. My house is supposed to be a house of prayer, and you've made it into nothing but a den of robbers. And he's looking at him, you're nothing but a robber. And he throws the table over. And then it's almost like a curtain call. Because everything gets quiet. And some different folks walk in. 
Jesus says, my house should be called a house of prayer. Isaiah chapter 56 and verse 7 is the passage of Scripture that he's quoting there. These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer with burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. From my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. In Mark's account, the same thing of this story says the, thing, says the same thing. My house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. You see, the people were trusting in money more than they were trusting in God. And they were robbing the people of worship. Now Jesus says to them, My house shall be a house of prayer for all peoples. In other words, Jesus is standing there and he's looking at an extremely diverse group of folks from all over the Roman Empire. He's seeing various shades of skin. He is seeing and hearing different languages. And he says, My house is a house of prayer for all people. Now notice how Jesus identifies his house. Quoting from Isaiah, my house shall be a house of prayer. He does not say my house shall be a house of preaching. I wish he had. He does not say my house shall be a house of programs. Why wouldn't that have been convenient? He doesn't even say my house shall be a house of different music styles. He says my house shall be a house of of prayer. Do you realize what Jesus is saying to us? He is saying that the top priority of his house is to be prayer. And how many times when we do church do we tack a prayer onto the front of whatever we're doing? We tack a prayer onto the back of whatever we're doing, but the important stuff is in the middle. But Jesus didn't say the important stuff is in the middle. When we run our mouths and express our opinions, He said the important stuff is what we've given a little bit of time to in the front and in the back. My house shall be a house of prayer for all people. You see, in leadership, it is only prayerful leaders who make a lasting impact. Prayerful leaders lead in the power of God. Prayerful leaders do not lead out of anger where they intimidate people to follow them. They do not lead out of anxiety where they're scared all the time and producing anxiety in other people. When you and I serve the Lord in any capacity, prayer does several things. First of all, prayer produces within us a cool head. Second, it produces within us a calm heart, which leads to a controlled tongue. A cool head, a calm heart, and a controlled tongue. God uses prayer to shape us and to mold us after Jesus. Imagine your life being like Plato. And you go to the place of prayer and you take the Play-Doh of your life, and you place it in His hands. And in prayer, God begins to do this. He begins to shape us. He begins to mold us into what He wants us to be. You see, prayer is not me coming to God and trying to shape Him and mold Him into what I want Him to be and do. 
Prayer is me bringing myself to Him and saying, Jesus, shape me and mold me into what you want me to be. So that when I finish in prayer, I'm a little bit more like Jesus than when I went in to prayer. My house is to be a house of prayer for all people. Years ago when I was a student at Liberty University, Dr. Jerry Falwell used to say to us over and over and over again, nothing of eternal significance happens apart from prayer. Nothing of eternal significance happens apart from prayer. Nothing of eternal significance ever happens apart from prayer. He used to tell us, if you want to see the secret of Thomas Road Baptist Church, then come here on Sunday evenings at 5 o'clock. From the first Sunday that that church started, a group of folks in that congregation gathered at 5 o'clock every Sunday afternoon and they prayed for an hour over that church. And he said, that's the secret of this church. It's that hour-long prayer meeting on Sunday afternoons at 5 o'clock. Notice what happens in the story beginning with verse 14. It's, it's, it's like two different worlds. When the tables had finished falling and the change had finished clanging on the ground and the robbers, the money changers, had evacuated the temple area, it got dead silent. And then it says, lame and blind people begin to approach Jesus. Now, something very significant here, the lame and the blind were not allowed in the temple courts, so they were breaking the traditions and the customs. And I want you to imagine, you've got tables laying all over the place, changes all over the place. You've probably got animals that are running around squalling, etc., because they've been, they've been you know, knocked out and let out of their cages and so forth. And then you see these lame people dragging a leg behind them, hobbling along. And then you see blind people who were probably having to be led by the lame people. Can you imagine what that looked like? Trying to find their way to get to Jesus. You see, the, the house of commerce had been transported and transformed into a house of prayer. And the lame and the blind recognized what had happened. They knew that Commerce time was over, selling time was over, and healing time had begun. They knew that the power of man was vanquished, and now it was time for the power of God to show up. You see, when God's house becomes a house of prayer, we do away with what we human beings can accomplish in and of ourselves, and we begin to walk in what God alone can accomplish. Oh, I tell you, I, I yearn and I love when we get to a place in church life, when we walk around and say, God did that, God did that, and it can't be explained any other way than Jesus pulled that one off. And that is exactly what goes on here. Jesus begins to, to reach out to these folks who were the rejects of society, who weren't even supposed to be there. But Jesus has always got time in his house for people who are in need. And the folks that we may look at and say, what do they bring to the temple? Lame and blind people, they don't have any money, they don't have any power, they don't have any importance. What do they bring to the temple? Jesus looked at them and said, they're human beings, that's what they bring to the temple. 
They were people that I can manifest my healing power on. Let them come on in. And the hands that just earlier had been turning over the tables now reach out and bring healing power to the bodies of the lame and the blind. What happens in a house of prayer? Notice verse 15. God does wonderful things in a house of prayer. The children begin to yell, Hosanna to the Son of David, which was the title of Jesus as the Messiah. Even the children take notice of what God is doing in a house of prayer. People are prioritized. Even when they are rejects, they are prioritized. We get in touch with sin in our lives and our need to repent when we're in a house of prayer. We get a word from God that gives us direction and strength and help when we're in a house of prayer. We calm down because we know that He's in control. We heal. Notice what Jesus says in verse 16. He say, get the kids to, to stop praising him. And he says, don't you know that out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you have prepared praise? The word translated pre- prepared or perfected praise is used a few chapters earlier to speak of mending the nets of the fishermen. And I think what he's trying to say is, Listen, when you begin to praise me, I begin to mend you. You want to get healed? Start praising. You want to get deliverance? Start praising. You want to know the power of God putting you back together? Start praising. Stop talking about how sick you are, how miserable you are, how fouled up you are, how much you've messed up. Stop focusing on that and start praising me because when you praise me, you get connected to me, you touch me, and I touch you. And you can't touch him and be touched by him without getting healing in the process. This morning, to some degree, we will, uh, in this service in just a moment, we will... Uh, are focused in on leadership, and we will ordain a new deacon. And I, I want to say to all of our leaders here, folks, the greatest, whether you're deacon, a Sunday school teacher, committee member, whatever, the greatest need we have for you as a leader in this church is not for how well you can ex- exercise your duty as a leader. The greatest need we have for leaders in our church is for us to be men and women of prayer. That is our greatest need and our first calling. That's the reason on Wednesday nights at 7 o'clock right now, we're going through a study on prayer and spending time in prayer. One of the first lessons God taught me as a young pastor years ago, my first pastorate, we were a small neighborhood church, ran about 75 or 80 on Sunday morning. Sometimes creak up a little bit more than that. I thought revival had broken out when we hit 90. And we went through a dry period. Nobody was coming to Jesus. Nobody was joining the church. Now, when they were out there trying to sin or anything like that, it just nothing was happening. But we would get and go through the motions and do what I was preaching my best I knew how, and we were singing the best we knew how, etc. But nothing seemed to be happening in terms of people coming to Christ. And so my deacon said, we need to get together and pray. So we got together on a Sunday morning. We had a 
we had breakfast together in the fellowship hall. Then we went into a Sunday school classroom. And we didn't have an agenda. We just sat around a conference table and we began to pray. And one man would pray and another guy would pray and another guy would pray. And we would just go back and forth, back and forth. No set agenda. We just begin to pray over the church. And for an hour we did that. And at the end of that hour we got up and said goodbye to each other and left. Sunday morning I thought, man, revival is going to break out. And I gave the invitation and nothing happened. Next Sunday I thought something's going to happen. And I gave the invitation, and nobody came forward. Now, being a man of extreme faith, I begin to think, I wonder if that prayer meeting accomplished anything or not. God makes us wait on Him sometimes. Third week, as I recall, I got up and gave the invitation that morning. And people started coming. And people kept on coming. In fact, I had so many people lined up, and they were all coming just about to get saved. I had so many people coming forward to come to Christ, I couldn't counsel all of them. I had choir members that had to come out of the choir loft in their robes and start counseling people and leading people to Jesus because I couldn't keep up with the amount of people that were coming forward, coming to Christ. And we sang and we sang and we sang and people got saved and they got saved and they got saved. And the Spirit of God was just breaking out all over that church that morning. And a few weeks later, we dedicated an evening worship service to baptizing all those folks. And we had a celebration after that in our fellowship hall. And what God taught me through that is you got to get beside him. You got to get down on your face before him. You got to say, God, I can't bring my education in here. I can't bring all the programs in here. All I can do is call on you because sooner or later in the life of your church, we got to know an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. We got to know what only God can do. And we're going to call on you to do what you can do. And Lord, we're not going to say that you just did it back in the 50s. We're not going to say you just did it back in the 70s. We're not going to say you just did it back in the book of Acts. We believe our God can show up today and is as relevant today as he has ever been. We want a fresh outpouring, almighty God, of what you can do. And we saw young people come to Christ, and we saw adults come to Christ. And folks, what I'm saying this to you as leaders this morning, I want to beg you, whether you're at home, whether you're at church, seek his face, call upon him in prayer. I want to beg us as a congregation, let's seek God For what only God can do. And I want to pledge to you as your pastor, and I've already begun this, trying to increase this discipline in my life, to spend more time with Him in prayer, asking Him, over, praying over specific people to come to Christ. Asking Him to do a specific work. Let me say this, if God's going to grow a church and it's going to go long term, and it's going to reach people and grow people in Jesus, you've got to lay the foundation in prayer first. That's where it starts. Let's pray.